Okay. I hope this doesn't fall off. Hey, uh, if you're watching online this morning, we're going to be celebrating the communion of the bread and cup. So you want to find uh, uh, a piece of bread or wine, not or, and wine or something that approximate that. Here in our service today, you should have one of these. If you didn't get one of these, uh, Liz can walk around and, and hand you one. So if you didn't get one of these, um, put your hand up and she'll take care of you. Uh, so there are a couple people here. Uh, there was a time when I made a, a really concerted effort to become a cartoonist. And this is like, you know, 20 something years ago, but 20, probably about 30 years ago, I guess, to be safe on that. And back in those days, back in those days, the way you did that was that you would put together a little packet of the cartoons that you wanted to try to sell and then a cover sheet and then samples of your work that the art director would keep. And going into this, you you get coached by a lot of people who go before you and just say, listen, you know, there's going to be a lot of rejections. You're, you're going to see thousands of rejections before you ever see uh, a single uh, affirmation in the midst of all of that. And and so I did. I mean, I got, I got lots and lots of rejection slips. I kept them for whatever reason in a folder. I still got them to this day. Uh, what, what they would do is that they would keep your sample and then they would send uh, the rejection slip or the acceptance, they'd buy whatever. Um, but, uh, it, you know, even though you're prepared for it, even though you know you're going to be getting a lot of rejection slips, it's still no fun to get one of those things. I remember, and this is true, Mad Magazine, the art director from Mad Magazine, actually uh, sent the normal form rejection slip, but he also put a little handwritten note in there saying, I kept your sample on file but I will probably never contact you. <laughs> it was, it was the, the sweetest and really most personal rejection I ever, I ever got. So they say that the same area of the brain is, is activated when we experience rejection as it is when we experience physical pain, which tells us a lot then about why it is that rejection is such an important thing that we have to deal with uh, as human beings. Nobody enjoys it. And yet it's still part of the human experience. We're, we've all had experiences with rejection. And, and because it's part of the human experience, it's one that actually Jesus himself goes through. Uh, we're going to read about Jesus being rejected in his hometown today. And we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. And if you have a way of following along, and if you'd like to, go to Luke chapter 4, please. Last week when we began this chapter, we read the account of Jesus being tested in the wilderness. And we observed how he overcame those temptations. And we looked at how we can follow Jesus' pattern of being able to overcome these forces and influences of our present world and be able to live differently or choose differently. And today we're going to be reading about Jesus returning to his hometown and making a declaration about the nature of his ministry. A lot of people have referred to it as Jesus' manifesto that he provides to us. Uh, and, and the response to Jesus in the passage we're going to be reading, at first is, is somewhat positive, but then things turn dark pretty quickly as people realize just what it is that Jesus is saying. So we're going to learn some things about the nature of the gospel that we want to keep in mind as we live our lives, we're also going to see that God's grace is oftentimes scandalous to people. And, and, and we want to learn how we can avoid the pitfall of becoming scandalized by grace in our own journey of faith. And that's the other thing that we're going to pay attention to 
in this passage. So if you're there in Luke chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 14. And before I start reading this, do I sound loud to anybody else or is it just me? Everybody good? Okay, because I can get over it. I didn't want to, <laughs> I just feel very self-conscious. I have a lot of things going on today. Somebody was talking to me about my hand movements today, talking about how I push things under the fence a lot. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very self-conscious this morning about how I'm moving and how I sound. But uh, beyond that, we're going to have a great time. So Luke chapter four, and we're going to pick up where we left off with verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee. Filled with the Holy Spirit's power. After this test out in the wilderness, he goes back to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. Okay, so the account of this happening occurs also in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel but it happens way later on in the story. Luke kind of jumps, jumbles this around. Luke actually uses this sort of like a flash forward uh, in the narrative because in so many ways, what happens in Nazareth is a microcosm of Jesus's whole ministry. And Luke seems to want to set the tone for us to encapsulate everything that's going to be happening uh, that's to come. So a good amount of time passes between verses 14 and 15 in here. His public ministry has been launched in the larger town of Capernaum uh, there in Galilee. And big crowds have come to hear him teach and have also come to be healed by him as well. So his ministry is getting attention. There's, you know, his, his fame is beginning to spread. So that's the larger context of this account. Luke, as always, portrays Jesus as a devout Jewish person. Uh, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. It says, as usual, you could say, or as his, was his custom. Luke is very careful not to allow Jesus to be viewed as some sort of rebel outside of the norms or as someone who flouted the traditions of his people. He was a good Sabbath keeper, and he went to the synagogue as was expected of him. This is what he did. This is how he grew up. He continued on in these traditions. It's difficult to pin down historically, exactly when the synagogue system began in Israel's history. Most scholars trace it back to the Babylonian exile, but even there, we have no real clear-cut record as to how this all began. What we do know is that that was firmly in place in Jesus' day, and especially after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, that became the primary means of the systematic religion of the Jewish people uh, to this very day. From the rabbinical writings, we know that the synagogue service uh, began with prayer, and then the law would be read, followed by readings from the prophets, a lot like a lectionary would be in a high church service, like within the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church. Uh, any man, not women at that time, I'm sorry, but any man at that time could volunteer to, to read simply by standing up and acknowledging that he wanted to read from this. Much of what we know as a, a normal church service actually is birthed out of the whole synagogue movement. We mirror a lot of the, the things that were going on. Uh, and, you know, uh, in our present-day churches, it would be unusual for somebody to just surprisingly stand up and read, which it shouldn't be, but it's the way it is. Usually, uh, in the synagogue service, you, uh, the reader would have been assigned uh, in advance. The reader would typically, uh, you know, stand up at a desk, a tall desk, unroll the scroll, read from it, and then he would sit down on a centrally located chair and begin to teach, to begin to interpret what it is that he had just uh, read. 
And so it also appears that a vigorous discussion would sometimes break out called a midrash. So after the, the, the teaching was given, then they would all sit and discuss what just took place. And it's something that Luke kind of implies happens later on in this account. Jesus, uh, having become a prominent rabbi in Galilee, was probably treated like a guest of honor. Well, we've heard about everything going on down there in Capernaum. Come on up. Come and read and, and teach from the scroll. And so we'll pick back up. This is, this is the background. We've got to understand the synagogue system if we understand what's going on here today. So verse uh, 17. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for it's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free. And at that and, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Okay, so this is how it's, it's set up here. The scriptures are fascinating to me. Uh, when I see how things are, are laid out for us. In some places, a few verses will span months or even years of time, like we saw between verses 14 and 15. A lot of time elapsed in there. But then we get to sections like we just read, and Luke slows the narrative way down, so much so that he's even describing body movements to us. The scroll is handed. He takes the scroll. He searches through to find the spot he wants. He rolls the scroll up. He sits down. Everybody focuses their eyes on him. All these details pretty well immerse us. They transport us into that moment. We actually feel what's going on in that section. We sense the tension of it. Luke's intentional deceleration tells us that this is all really important stuff that we need to pay attention to, that he's writing here. That's why he wants us immersed in this scene. And while we infer that Jesus has been ministering for some time, this is Luke's first description of Jesus's public ministry. And in any great literature, the first statement from the main character is especially important. It helps us understand what is going to be happening with this character, where this is going, where this story is going. And though the book of Isaiah is handed to Jesus, Jesus still goes through to choose specifically something, a particular passage to read. And the first words that Luke records of Jesus' public ministry was from Isaiah 61, with a smattering of Isaiah 58 thrown in for good measure. What he read was a forecast from Isaiah about God breaking in to human history to rescue his people, the day of the Lord that Israel had been anticipating all this time. And we realized that the emphasis must have been on the pronoun me when he was reading these things. The, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me. Uh, and you realize that the prophet Isaiah then wrote this for Jesus to quote hundreds of years later. That's a fascinating concept. And after he reads it, everyone's silent, wondering what he's going to say. What's he going to follow that up with? And he doesn't disappoint. It's a drop the mic moment, but it's a bombshell when it drops. And what Isaiah forecast, he says, has now come true meaning he was the agency through whom God was going to bring the deliverance that Israel had been waiting for all this time. It's a really powerful moment that is set up in this tiny synagogue in a nowhere town. What's intriguing about this is when Jesus reads Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, 
he left off the last part of verse 2, which is amazing to me. It says in Isaiah 61, the last part of verse 2, the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it, the day of God's anger or his wrath against their enemies. The day of the Lord for Israel was always a two-edged sword. It was a time of healing for the Israelites and for the world, but it was also a day of judgment for Israel's enemies. Why did Jesus leave that last part off? Why would he just drop that in the midst of this quotation of Scripture? Did he just not want to be negative? You know, I don't want to be negative with these people. They're my hometown. Was he trying to, to soften the, the prophecy so that he could, you know, get more followers on Facebook or something? Was he hoping to, you know, to gain a little bit of popularity by making it a little bit of a, a softer, nicer message? I think that's highly unlikely. I believe it has to do with timing. Jesus said, today, this is fulfilled. Today being the operative word. What Israel didn't know was that these things that they were waiting for, this is all happening in stages. There is a timing that's unfolding on this that nobody anticipated. Jesus saying today is not the day of God's anger. It's the day of God's care and God's mercy, God's ingathering of the humanity that he loves so much. So we discover here that Jesus' first teaching in Luke reveals that the good news is a proclamation of God's grace and restoration. That is why it's good news. That's what God has come to bring, God's favor and the power to redeem and restore human beings that he loves. Now, the prophecy that Jesus quotes is directed to those described as poor, those who are held captive, and those who are blind, and those who are oppressed. And the question that arises from this is, who is he talking about here? Is this a metaphor for the fallen condition of the human race? Or is he talking about those who literally experience those conditions? And I would say the answer is yes, right? <laughs> that, you know, that, that historically, this is what the church has struggled with. If you look back objectively at the history of the church, uh, we've had a great difficulty maintaining the two emphases of the gospel, uh, the spiritual and the social aspects of it. We go back and forth between extremes on this. We never, it's a rarity that we can find a balance in this. Sometimes the church will get so focused on the social aspect of the gospel work that it becomes entirely like outside of the work of God in most people's minds. It's just doing nice things, which there's nothing wrong with doing nice things, but is that the, the gospel initiative? I'm not sure. Or, as evangelicals are prone to do, which we somewhat represent, we emphasize the spiritual condition so much that the social aspect is almost entirely left out altogether. Well, you know, we're trying to get people saved. We don't have time to mess with feeding poor people or advocating for justice. We're busy here. Neither extreme is properly representing the whole gospel. Both the spiritual and the social concerns are part of this mission that Jesus gave to us, are part of, of what it is that he described right out of the gate. This is about alleviating the, the pain of this broken world and, and just putting on display what it is that God has in mind when he is in charge. The background to this imagery is the year of Jubilee from Leviticus 25, 8 to 17. And, and in that, it describes a time when, when all debts are declared nullified and everyone was provided with an equal footing. It was something that God built into the law. No one, at the end of Jubilee, no one would have the upper hand of power over another person. It was a picture of God's intent 
to overturn the fallen condition of this world because anybody can look at it and recognize this is, this is part of the larger tension of this world. The fact that there is power exercised over people and how that affects human beings. And so just as the year of Jubilee initiated a new start, that's what it was all supposed to mean. Jesus is declaring this is a time of a new start. Something new is happening here in this world. God is beginning the process of making all things new. He begins with our hearts, but then he works outward from there and begins to affect our families, affect our neighborhoods, affect the world around us. That means the spiritual wholeness that we experience is going to work its way into the world as we seek to bring relief to others. That's part of what this gospel mission is all about, spiritually and practically bringing relief as a picture of God's intent. This is what God wants. This is what God is working towards. I read a quote uh, the other day that said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And that's a great quote, a great thing to keep in mind. The message of the gospel is a message of grace. It's the hope of restoration. It's the promise of redemption, of God making all things new, of restoration. Uh, It's why it is definitively good news. It's about God's love for his creation. And you'd think that that would get everybody stoked, right? Like, wow, that's great to hear. Good news. Yeah. But just like today, when someone will complain that a preacher talks too much about grace and not enough about hell, those who heard Jesus that day start looking at him suspiciously. (laughs) Wait a minute. What are you saying here? So let's keep reading. Verse 22. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, things are taking a turn right here, but it's hard to see on the surface in the English translation. It's tricky because it sounds like they're at first very approving of Jesus. They spoke well of him. uh, But, you know, then it goes downhill surprisingly fast uh, from there. Now, there's compelling uh, arguments made that in the Greek, the phrase spoke well of him means they bore witness of him. And that's right. Uh, which we would automatically assume is is a favorable thing, but there are scholars who insist that the phrase can also mean bore witness against him. So it's possible this actually started off negatively right after Jesus' words, but either way, they were suspicious. It, it, it makes more sense to think that it started negatively, but it's also possible that they started more positively, but during the discussion, if they were having a midrash about this, at first they're listening and they're amazed, and then they start discussing And it got more and more perplexing to them as they went along. And they conclude by questioning his pedigree. You know, wait, hold on. This kid, this is Joe's kid, right? I mean, he was over here. He's a, you know, a handyman. Where does he get off coming back into town, acting all superior to us? But the real clue to their attitude shows up at what they were amazed at. It says they were amazed at his gracious words, which may mean the quality of Jesus' speaking or more likely the content because he's been talking about God's grace, which is his mission to promote. And that, I believe, is what tripped them up. See, what you need to know is that is not the message that Israel was hoping to hear when Messiah was going to show up. They're, they're, you know, they were all for grace for Israel, <laughs> but they wanted the day of wrath for their enemies. And Jesus leaving that part out kind of throws a monkey wrench in that. We'd like the, the full message, please, Jesus. 
We'd like the Romans and the collaborating priests publicly tried and executed if we could. We want a Messiah who's going to storm Herod's palace and steal his laptop or whatever. But along comes Jesus identifying himself as a source of jubilee and preaching God's grace on a universal level. And I think this is telling. It's as telling as it is timeless. And that is that God's grace is disruptive to people who have God all figured out. And this is not a time for us to point our finger anywhere else but at our own hearts. When it comes to God's grace and how he loves humanity, we have to leave a lot of room for mystery. For mystery when it comes to that. The people in Israel at that time had suffered a lot. And there is no doubt based on what we know from the history of that time period that the average person lived in an oppressed condition. It was not good for them. There was a lot for them to be resentful about, especially with the iron fist of the Roman Empire lording over everything. They were sure that those people who were in power, who had so misrepresented them and persecuted them, were going to be the first against the wall when God showed up. And when Jesus starts going away from that script that they had written so neatly for God, they got mad at him. Well, you're not the Messiah we're looking for. You don't even have the droids we're looking for. This is a timeless warning because we always have to be alert and on guard against forming attitudes about how God is going to go about advancing his kingdom and more importantly, who it is that God's going to love in the process of doing this. We can easily get frustrated and start frustrating God's calling on our lives by fixating on who we believe the enemy is supposed to be instead of taking up the lens of grace and viewing all people through that, through the lens of God's universal, boundless, unthinkable love for the human race. I'm learning to leave a wide berth for mercy. Because it's always so much bigger than I imagine. If we start limiting God's grace to our own understanding of it, we can miss opportunities to express that grace into the world. And we don't want to miss those opportunities because it's our reason for being. This is the mission that Jesus launched here and expects to continue on through his church into the world. And certainly I'm not trying to suggest, as questions will be quick to formulate, I'm not trying to suggest that there is no such thing as morality or anything like that. Surely there are morals, but still morals are not the basis for who is the recipient of grace. Because if it were, we'd all be toast. All of us. So Jesus rejects their rejection and he counters it. In verse 23, then he said, you'll undoubtedly quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your home, do miracles here (laughs) in your hometown like those that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. But 
The only one healed was Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. And jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. And that's where we'll stop today. But Jesus anticipates their attitude by, by quoting a local proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, dude, you're able to cure all these people in Capernaum. You need to turn that power back on yourself because you are nuts, man. So Jesus responds by pointing to events from the time of Elijah and Elijah that you can read about in First and Second Kings. And he reminds the people that, that during that time, the prophets didn't do anything for the nation of Israel for the ones considered to be the called out chosen ones of the promised land. But he did heal a couple of Gentiles who were part of the enemies that persecuted Israel. It's a bold, this is a, this is a bold and a harsh comeback uh, by Jesus. First, because he compares their current state as, as one of the least spiritual periods in the, in the history of Israel. And secondly, it suggests that Gentiles who were incessantly disliked by the Jewish people were the ones that God was seeking out to help. He's implying that with what he's saying here. And suddenly, suddenly the people get what he's saying. It dawns on them what it is that his message is. And with one heart, they decide to kill him. Uh, they got the message and they didn't like it. How dare you intimate that, that God has love and mercy for our enemies, our persecutors, our oppressors. How could you think a thing like that? But this is crucial to our understanding of the good news and our, our, our calling as being agents of that good news. God's grace is for all people in all places. And places can mean geography, but it can also mean condition. This is why all forms of bigotry are incompatible with God's grace. Not just racial bigotry. Certainly, that's important, especially given what we're going through as a nation, but religious bigotry as well. That sense of superiority that assumes our group is part of God's plan while others are not. The people of Nazareth weren't upset about the message of grace in and of itself. You know, I like the idea of God's favor. That's pretty cool. They were upset when Jesus was applying it to everybody and not just them. Everybody, including the Gentile oppressors. When we make up our mind about who's in or who's out or who's worthy of God's grace and who isn't, we're not many steps from the people of Nazareth who tried to push Jesus over a cliff. There they were, ready to do him in, and it says that he slips away. Now, I don't know, you know, he gave us all these details about handing scrolls back and forth. I could have used a few more details here, but <laughs> whatever. You, you do you, Luke. But the thing is that he either it was either like one of these Jedi, you know, Messiah tricks where he just kind of slips off and disappears, or maybe, you know, his disciples ran interference for him and he was able to run and, and get out of town fast enough. He's a fast Messiah, too, so... There's no way to know how this really went down, but the real point of it, the real gut punch in this story is right there that we read at the last. He went on his way. He left. I cannot think of a sadder ending 
for this story. God's grace is for all people, which means our calling is to love and care for all people. This applies to everyone. If we're wanting to work in concert with Jesus, if we want to be moving along with where he's going and what he's doing, race, religious affiliation, political parties, economic status, self-identification, philosophical leanings, none of that is a barrier to God's eternal grace. Nothing, nothing that you can imagine can hold back the flood of his love for humanity. There is not one person who can claim superiority. We all fall in need of this boundless mercy, this boundless grace. So let's be good news people by being people who experience and express God's grace into this world. Let's not just be people who experience and feel good because God loves us and feel better about how it is that we approach life. Let's be people who are taking that and expressing that into this world. Not only with the words that we say, but with the things that we do to let people know God's grace is there for you today. These words have been fulfilled. It's still being fulfilled. He's still opening blind eyes. He's still taking care of the poor. He's still bringing us the redemption that he promised long ago. Let's leave room for mystery. Let's learn to view each other in light of Christ's sacrificial love. Did I deserve his death on my behalf? It's a rare person who's just going to jump up and say, yeah, I deserved that. And if I didn't deserve it, then none of us did. And let's view each other. Let's view the world around us in light of that sacrificial love. Right on?